Ministry speaker presenter Lyle Southwell presenting the ancient codes of Bible prophecy in his live series called The Prophetic Code. You'll be amazed as he cracks the ancient codes of Bible prophecy in ways you have never heard before. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the privilege that it is this evening once again to study your word. And as we look into this prophecy or the continuation of this prophecy, we pray that you'll guide our minds. We pray that you'll make it clear in our minds exactly what the prophecy is teaching us about you. And as we pray each night, we pray once again for the presence of your Holy Spirit. We pray for the presence of your holy angels. We pray that you'll be right here with us right now to draw us close to you and to help us to understand everything that the prophecies say. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This evening as we begin our subject on the Cursed Code, I'm going to take you to a very ancient Assyrian sculpture. And this particular sculpture, there are a number of them that were a part of the gates of Nineveh, depict a divine being, an Assyrian god. And one of the ways that you are able to identify this as being an Assyrian god is because of what he wears on his head. You'll notice that he's wearing on his head a tiara or a triple crown. Triple crown is often referred to as a tiara. The reason that he wears a triple crown is because it denotes him as being a ruler of heaven, a ruler of earth, and a ruler of the underworld. And if you rule all three of those, then you must be a divine being. Now, this is a concept that you'll find spread all over the world. Here you find another Assyrian one right here, a whole bunch of different symbols coming through here. It's fascinating how you see them popping up all over the place. Here's some Assyrian ones. And here's a Babylonian one. The Babylonian one had a slightly different style to it. Then you have Lilith. She wears one. Here's another Babylonian one. This is the Egyptian version. We've talked about Egypt each night as we have come along. And the Egyptians had their version, which was a different style again. But you find the triple crown is something that pops up in many different places. Here is the Buddhist version of the tiara. And here you have a Kabbalistic, that's a Jewish version. Uh, This is mystical Judaism, of course. Here you have a Hindu one. There are a number of Hindu ones that we have. Uh, Same concept coming through. Um, Here's the Buddhist version. And once again, what you find is that these are symbols that all have a common origin. And as they all have a common origin, you find that they spread around the world beginning in ancient Babylon. And you find them through many different religions. Of course, the one that we are most familiar with with today is the Christian one. And of course, this one disturbs me a little bit because when you look at its roots and where it came from, you sort of wonder, well, what's the meaning of that one? Well, there's the meaning of it. If you can read that, you're doing better than me. So here's the English translation. Ruler of the kings of the world, ruler over the world itself, ruler in the place of Christ. And so that one sort of raises some questions in my mind. Now, the biggest question out of all of this is simply this. And that is, how do you know when a being is a divine being. There have been many, many people who have been here on this earth who have claimed to be God. Can you become God by putting a triple crown on your head? Does that make you God? So how do you tell when someone is a divine being? Now, I believe that there was a man who came to this earth who is a divine being, and that's Jesus Christ. 
So how do I know that he is a divine being? Well, I believe that the second part of the prophecy, as we look at it this evening, will reveal to us that Jesus truly is a divine being. And so as we begin, let's do a, this is part two, so we'll do a quick refresher from last night, shall we? We covered a lot of ground last night, didn't we? So here's a quick refresher. We'll start right here in Daniel chapter 2, and we will note that the book of Daniel is built on the principle of repeat and enlarge. And so each time the prophecy repeats itself, it enlarges on the information, gives us a different view of what the prophecy is talking about. Daniel chapter 2 is the first prophecy. There are four prophecies in the book. Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 8 and 9, Daniel 10 through 12. So Daniel chapter 2, you've got Babylon, Medo, Persia, Greece, Rome. Then you go to chapter 7, you've got Babylon, Medo, Persia, Greece, Rome. We will deal with that on Tuesday night. Then you go to chapter 8. And of course, Babylon is left out and it starts straight in with Medo-Persia because this empire here is coming to an end and it goes Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. The same sequence of events all the way down through. However, when you come down to the end of these prophecies, of course, you'll find here uh, the Antichrist pops up here. And if we want to know who the Antichrist is, once again, you'll need to be here on Tuesday night as we begin that series looking at the identity of the Antichrist. Then we found that the next great event was the cleansing of the sanctuary or the judgment. One of the things that we found last night is that the cleansing of the sanctuary, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the Day of Judgment as it is called, is symbolic of the judgment taking place in heaven. And so we looked at a little bit of how the temple actually worked. You see, the temple is mentioned over a hundred times in the book of Revelation alone. If you count the temple, if you count its, its furniture and its services and all the different aspects of it, that's a lot of time. So you need to be able to understand the basic working function of the temple to be able to understand the prophecy. And so we looked at the temple. We found that the temple had three parts. There was a courtyard on the outside. Then on the inside, you had the holy place. And then you had the most holy place. And when a person sinned, we found that they would bring a lamb here to the courtyard. They would confess their sin on the head of the lamb. And it was all about the transferring of sin. The sin was transferred from you to the lamb, a symbol of Jesus. The lamb had done nothing wrong. But once the sin had gone from you to the lamb, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. So what has to happen to the lamb? It has to die. Who has to kill it? You do. Because it was our sins that caused Jesus to die on Calvary. He did not deserve to die, but he died for you and I. Then the blood was taken from the lamb and it was taken into the sanctuary into the temple, into the holy place, and it was sprinkled here uh, in front of the veil, on the veil, and on the four horns of the golden altar right there, symbolizing the sin was being transferred from the sinner to the lamb to the holy place. And so the sinner would walk out scot-free. That sin, from that point, from the moment that he confessed that, Sin, that sin had left him and had absolutely nothing to do with him ever again. He is covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Praise God. 
Then they had a service once a year, and in that service once a year, they would sacrifice a goat. It was called the Lord's goat. And the sacrifice of the goat was for the cleansing of the holy place. It would cleanse out the record of all of the sins that had been forgiven. Very simply, it worked a little bit like this. We talked about it, how it worked. If you had two people who during the year, one had confessed his sins and one had not confessed his sins when the Day of Atonement came, if this guy here had confessed his sins, they were all inside the sanctuary. And if this guy had not confessed his sins, they were all still on him. When the Day of Atonement comes, there is no record anywhere that this guy has ever done anything wrong. No record. Whereas there's a record of everything that this guy has done wrong. And so we found that it was very simply a dividing between those who had asked forgiveness of their sins and those who had not, those who were righteous and those who were wicked. As simple as that. It's a judgment taking place. We found that in relationship to most fascinating prophecy in Daniel chapter 8. Let's turn our Bibles to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. And you'll find that on page 363. And here we worked our way down through the prophecies, down through Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, all the way to the end of the prophecy. And then we found the part of the prophecy that was talking about the time of the end. Verse 14, he said unto me, under 2,300 days, then shall the what? Sanctuary be cleansed. We found that the cleansing of the sanctuary is a symbol of the judgment as the sacrifice of the lamb is a symbol of the crucifixion. So a prophecy telling us under 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary cleanse, be cleansed, is going to direct us to the beginning of the judgment. Isn't that so? However, where does the judgment take place? And this is a question that we have to ask ourselves. Where does the judgment take place? And this relates to the whole concept of the rebuilding of the temple. You see, we know that the judgment takes place in heaven. And last night, we found that the temple that is mentioned in the prophetic chapters of Daniel and Revelation over and over and over and over again is only the one that is in heaven. The Bible says where our great high priest, Jesus, ministers every day on our behalf. And he never gives up and he never stops. Isn't that good news? He's always there. Praise God for you and I. So Jesus is always there in the temple, in the sanctuary, in heaven. And what we have is a prophecy pointing us forward to the beginning of the judgment in heaven. So when does that judgment take place? Well, let's have a look in the New Testament and let's see what the Bible says over in Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. Let's see what we can dig out some principles here as we begin to investigate the rest of this prophecy. Matthew chapter 16, and you'll find this on page 398. Page 398. The Bible says in verse 27, For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of His Father with His angels, and then He shall reward every man according to to his works. When does the Bible say that Jesus is going to hand out rewards? When does it say? When he returns, right? 
When Jesus comes back, the Bible says that He will then reward every man. Go to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation 22 and verse 12. Revelation 22 and verse 12. It says, and Jesus says, And behold, I come quickly and I bring my reward. How? With me to give every man according as his work shall bear. So let's stop and consider this for a moment. When does the judgment take place? Let me ask you a question. Does the judgment take place before or after the giving of rewards? Obviously before, right? And we know that the rewards are given at the second coming of Jesus. The Bible says, then he shall reward and he will bring his reward with him. You see, we all understand that you know, it would be rather foolish if, if God came back, he condemned some people and he saved others. And having done that, okay, all those people over there, they're all condemned. These people are all saved. We've got that problem solved. Okay, now that we've done that, let's sit down and have a judgment, find out who's guilty and who's not. Would that make any sense? Absolutely not. So we know that the judgment takes place before the return of Jesus. Okay, but how long before? Let's go back to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8, and let's find out. We were studying this time prophecy, and we didn't finish studying the time prophecy. In verse 14, Daniel 8, that's page 363, verse 14, he said unto me, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Then shall the judgment begin. Now, the prophecy from this point forward, that's the end of the prophecy. And in verse 15, the angel Gabriel comes and begins to give the explanation. We read through this last night. And the angel Gabriel gives very, very specific details explaining every part of the prophecy. And so here's what he explains. He tells us exactly who the ram is. He tells us exactly who the he-goat is. He tells us exactly who the little horn is. He tells us exactly how long the time prophecy is. And he tells us what happens at the end of the time prophecy. But when you come down to the part where Gabriel is going to explain the time prophecy in more detail, you find it in verse 26 of chapter 8. Gabriel says this. He's just finished speaking about the little horn. Comes to the time prophecy. And he said, the vision of the evenings and the mornings, that's the days, which was told is true. Wherefore, shut you up the vision, for it shall be for many days. Now, last night we noted that in Bible prophecy, a day symbolizes what? A year. That's what the Bible says. Ezekiel 4.6 was the passage we looked at. We could look at many others. So a day symbolizes a year in Bible prophecy, 2,300 years. We know that's going to bring us into modern history. But what's the one detail that has been left out? What detail don't we have? We don't have the starting date, do we? What's the use of a time prophecy without a starting date? It's a waste of time, isn't it? Why give a time prophecy if you're not going to give a starting date? You know, if you don't give a starting date to the prophecy, it's almost like God is saying, oh, 2,300 years. Then the judgment is going to begin. Uh, but I'm not going to give you a starting date. You know, what's God trying to do if he doesn't give us a starting date? He's trying to mess with our heads, isn't he? All right, the good news is that the moment that Daniel had an opportunity 
to study into this in more detail in chapter 9, that's exactly what he does. We know that he understood who the ram was. We know that he understood who the he-goat was. We know that he understood what the, who the little horn was. And we know that he understood how long the prophecy was. And we know that he understood what would happen at the end. There's only one thing he doesn't understand. And so you can read for homework. This is your homework. Along with filling out your study guide, your homework is to read the whole chapter. It is Daniel's prayer. It is an amazing prayer. It comes in two parts. The first part is his confession. He confesses his sins and the sins of his people. The second part is his request. And the moment that you get to his request, his request is just about one thing. He wants to know about the cleansing of the temple. His request begins in verse 17. Now, therefore, O our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplication. So here's the request. And cause your face to shine upon your sanctuary, your temple that is desolate. Verse 19. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen. And do not defer for your own sake, for my, O my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. And then in verse 20, something takes place. Notice what happens in verse 20. While I was speaking, he says, and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my request before the Lord my God for what? In chapter 9, verse 20. His request is for what? The ho- what was, what's on the holy mountain? What mountain is that called? That's Mount Zion. You're very quiet this evening. Okay, that's Mount Zion, all right? He is praying for Mount Zion because it is on Mount Zion where the temple is. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning. Which vision is that? The one we just read in chapter 8, isn't it? That's the one where Gabriel came, yeah? Being caused to fly swiftly touched me about the time of the evening oblation. Well, he must have flown very swiftly because he arrived from heaven to this earth in the space of about three verses. That's moving. Verse 20. He informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I am now come forth to give you skill and understanding. So there was a portion of the prophecy that Daniel did not understand. That was the time prophecy. And the Bible says, Gabriel says, I'm now going to explain to you the time prophecy. You see, start to see the connection of what's going on here. Gabriel's come back to finish the job. We continue on. Verse 23. At the beginning of your request, the commandment came forth, and I have come to show you, for you are greatly beloved, Therefore, understand the matter and consider the vision. So Gabriel's standing there, he's having a conversation with Daniel and he commands him, what I want you to do is to think about the vision. Now there's only one part of the vision he's going to be thinking about and that's the part that was left unexplained. That's the time prophecy. And so Gabriel then of course starts in with the time prophecy, and gives us a whole bunch of details there in relationship to the time prophecy. Let's read through verse 27, and I want you to notice what happens as we go through verse 24. Verse 24, 70 weeks, Gabriel says, are determined. Now, the word determined here is the Hebrew word chatak. 
It literally means to cut off. So 70 weeks are cut off. Now, let me point out the obvious before I go any further. To cut something off, you have to have something bigger to cut it off of. Isn't that so? Yep. So we've got 70 weeks cut off of, what's the bigger time prophecy? 2,300 days or years. So 70 weeks are cut off upon your people. Who is Daniel's people? The Jewish people, that's right, the Jewish people. And upon your holy city, and they're to do a number of things, to finish transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So there's a list of things there. Let's put them on the screen for a moment and work our way through them. We have 70 weeks. I have said here that 70 weeks are 490 years. How did I come to that conclusion? Because in Bible prophecy, one day symbolizes what? One year. So 70 times 7, I know there's some mathematicians here, gives you what? 490 years exactly. Okay. Within that time, the Jewish people are to basically get their act together, to finish transgression, make an end of sins. Um, However, then the Bible goes on and says, and to make reconciliation for iniquity. Now that's Jesus Christ, isn't that so? Only Jesus can make reconciliation for iniquity. So immediately we know that within the period of those 490 years, we are going to have the earthly ministry of Jesus where he dies on Calvary and makes reconciliation for iniquity and brings in everlasting righteousness because only Jesus can do that. No human being could do that. Then it says to seal the vision and to anoint the most holy. I find this very, very fascinating. You see, when you have a prophecy, a time prophecy, any prophecy by nature demands to be investigated, to find out whether it is true or not, and put to the acid test of fulfillment. Isn't that so? So here you are given a time prophecy. And within this time prophecy, as we go through the next couple of verses, there are a whole bunch of events that are to take place here on this earth that are historically verifiable. That we can go back, we can look at the history, we can check it out, and we can see if it is so. Okay. The Bible says that the fulfillment of this vision here, or this portion that has been cut off, the 490 years that is cut off the 2,300 days, will seal the vision. So in effect, what God has done is this. He says, I've given you 2,300 year prophecy. I'm going to cut off the first 490 years of that. I'm going to give you a bunch of events to take place in the first 490 years. And those will be the seal, those events. If they are accurately fulfilled, then you can trust what happens at the far end of the prophecy. You see, where did we say that the judgment takes place? Where does it take place? Are you all going to sleep already? Where does it take place? In heaven. heaven. Thank you. All right. Somebody's awake. It takes place in heaven and... We can't be there in heaven watching it take place, can we? So we can't see it. So we've got to accept it by faith. 
So what does God do? He says, all right, I don't want you to accept it by blind faith. You know, there are so many Christians today who, we mentioned it before, they believe because they believe because they believe. And they have this circular thing where they're like, oh, I've got a warm fuzzy inside me. And somebody else says, well, you know, I go to the cricket or the football and I get a warm fuzzy inside me when I do that. So what's the difference between yours and mine? God never asks anyone to have blind faith. God gives us abundant evidence for everything that we believe in. And the good news right here is he gives us the clearest evidence you'll find anywhere in Scripture that Jesus Christ is indeed a divine being prophesied hundreds and hundreds of years before he came to this earth and fulfilling every detail of those prophecies. Okay, so we want to find out what's actually going on here and how do we find a starting date? Well, the good news is that verse 25 gives us a starting date. In verse 25, the Bible says, Know therefore and understand that from... Now, the moment the Bible gives you the word from, it's going to give you a starting date. From the going forth of the commandment to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. Okay, so let's begin here with our starting point. The Bible says, Know you therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to rebuild and to restore Jerusalem. That's our starting point. So now all we have to find is that decree. Well, if you want to find that decree, it's not hard to find. All you need to do is turn in your Bibles back to the book of Ezra. And you'll find the whole decree recorded right there in the book of Ezra. We'll go to Ezra chapter 7. Ezra chapter 7. And in Ezra chapter 7, uh, if we go down to verse 7, the Bible says, well, the, the Ezra gives the, uh, the whole story of it right here. Uh, verse 7, they went up with him some of the children of the Israel and the priests and the Levites and the singers and the porters and the Nethanim under Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year. For upon the first day of the first month began he to go up from Babylon. And on the first day of the fifth month came he to Jerusalem according to the good hand of his God upon him. And then from verse 12 onwards, you can read the decree to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem. Now I want to show you some interesting things about this decree. The, the amazing thing about this decree right here is that this date that is given by Ezra is one of the most solidly established dates in history. Do you know why? Because we know exactly when the Persian kings reigned. The great thing about the Persians was they didn't record the history of their reigns on hard drives or paper. They recorded the history of their reigns by carving it into stone. So you can go back there and you can read it all today. The other thing that is really fantastic about the Persian kings was that because they worshipped the sun and the moon and the stars in the sky, they were very, very keen astronomers and they recorded anything of significance that happened in the night sky. Now astronomy is an exact science. One way that you can confirm the dates is by working backwards through astronomy and you can have exact dates for everything that happened with 
these kings right here. And so they're not hard to find an exact date. However, if you go home and read the whole book of Ezra, now that'll be a little bit more homework for you, you will find that there are a number of decrees. There are, in fact, there are three decrees. So why do we choose to go with this particular decree? Let me share with you the evidence. First of all, this is a decree to rebuild the city and to restore the government. Remember, Daniel chapter 9 said to rebuild and to restore. That was the other ones, the previous ones, were just to rebuild. Secondly, an exact date is given for this decree right here. And if you don't have an exact date, then of course the prophecy isn't going to be any use to us. Thirdly, it's the completion of the decree. Let me show it to you in Ezra chapter 6. Ezra chapter 6. And here you have to look at this decree, not with a Western mindset, but rather with a Hebrew mindset. It works a little bit like this. When you buy a house, when does that house become yours? On the first payment or the last one? The last one. We in the West, we kind of think of it as our house on the first one, don't we? But it doesn't become yours until the last one. That's how the Hebrew mindset works. Notice here in uh, Ezra chapter 6 and verse 14. It says, The elders of the Jews built and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. They builded and finished it according to the commandments. Notice it refers to it here. The commandment of the God of Israel and according to the commandment of Cyrus and of Darius and of Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Notice here that the commandment is spoken of as a singular command. Commandment, singular. You see, Cyrus initiated the decree. Darius confirmed it, but it was Artaxerxes who completed it. And that was where the decree is dated from. Not only that, but I want you to notice here that once it has been completed by Artaxerxes, the Bible refers to it as the commandment of God. And of course, the last point there is it works. If it didn't work, then we would be in all kinds of strife, wouldn't we? Okay, so we're given our exact commandment right here. All we have to do now is find the date. And the date for this commandment is the year 457 BC. Now, somebody was asking me about Sir Isaac Newton last night. Sir Isaac Newton was a, the, the most influential scientist who ever lived by a very wide margin. And yet Sir Isaac Newton wrote more about the Bible than he did about science. It's interesting. He calculated through this prophecy. He knew exactly how it all fitted in. And it just ceases, never ceases to amaze me how so much of this has been lost over time. And I have people come to me and they say, oh, wow, this is so amazing. We learned so many new things. Been around for a long time, but it's just been covered over. Okay, the years of Artaxerxes' reign, Sir Isaac Newton said, are among the most easily established dates in history. The canon of Ptolemy, the Greek Olympiads, allusions in Greek history to Persian affairs, all combined to place the seventh year of Artaxerxes at 457 BC. So now we have our starting date for the prophecy. Let's throw up a timeline, shall we? Let's divide this timeline up into a few different areas. First of all, we have 
70 weeks in total, the Bible says, are cut off. Daniel chapter 9, in verse 25, it says, Know therefore, notice how this, this section is divided up. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to, re, to restore and to build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks. So there's our first section of seven weeks right there. So we begin over here. We've got 490 years and we'll put the decree of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, right there and we'll put in our date 457 BC. Then we have seven weeks. There are seven days in a week. Seven sevens are what? 49. So we'll put 49 years there. That will bring us to the year 408 BC when the rebuilding of the city was actually completed. Then there is a period, the Bible goes on, Seven weeks, and then uh, in verse 25, 62 weeks. So if we add another 62 weeks right there, that brings us another 434 years, and that is going to bring us to what? To what? Messiah the Prince, isn't that so? So now you're all sitting on the edge of your chair wondering what date does that bring us to? We'll go home, dig out your calculators, and you can find out. No, I'll, I'll save you the effort. We'll do it right here. Okay, so here it comes. That will bring you to the AD 27. Uh-oh. Now we've got a problem, don't we? Was Jesus born in AD 27? No, Jesus wasn't born in AD 27. He was born in 4 BC. Kind of strange how that works, but anyway. Okay, so... What's the Bible talking about here? And this is where I find it really fascinating. You see, Jesus has many different names in the Bible. Isn't that so? Jesus is known as Jesus the Saviour. He's known as Emmanuel, God with us. He's known as the Son of God to show his divinity. He is known as the Son of Man to show his humanity. We go on and on and on down through the list. He's known as the Lamb to show his sacrifice. Every different name of Jesus tells us something different about who he is and his ministry here on this earth. Isn't that so? When the Bible refers to Jesus as the Messiah... What does the word Messiah mean? Who knows? The anointed one. The answer is the anointed one. When was Jesus anointed by the Holy Spirit? At his baptism. When was Jesus baptized? AD 27. Right on time. Friends, here we have a prophecy spanning hundreds of years pointing us to exactly the time that Jesus would be anointed by the Holy Spirit. We can go back. It is historically verifiable. The history is right there. And Jesus came right on time exactly as the prophecy specified. Now there's some evidence for divinity. A whole lot more evidence than putting a crown on the top of your head. If your existence has been prophesied hundreds and hundreds of years beforehand, that's something significant, wouldn't you say? All right. Well, we haven't finished the... We've got one week left here. 62 plus 7 is 69. That leaves one week, isn't that so? So now we have to find out what happens with the last seven years or the last seven days. Verse 26, the Bible gives us a couple of events that will take place after the death of Jesus. This is after 62 weeks or after this period here. After 62 weeks shall Messiah be cut off. That means he would die, but not for himself. 
Why does the Bible say that? Because Jesus died for each one of us here this evening. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary and the end thereof shall be with a flood and under the end of the war desolations are determined. Did that happen? Was there a general who arrived and destroyed the city and the temple after Jesus died? Yeah, the Roman general Titus came and wiped it all out. Then it goes on. Verse 27 gives us our last week. It says, And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the middle of the week he shall cause what to come to an end? The sacrifice and the oblation to cease for the overspreading of abominations. He shall make it desolate even until the consummation and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. So if we start from 27 AD, the Bible says in the middle of the week that will give us three and a half days or three and a half years. Isn't that so? All right, so let's put our three and a half years in there. The Bible says the Messiah will be cut off. He will bring the sacrifice and the oblation to an end. He will confirm the everlasting covenant. When was it that Jesus brought the sacrifice to an end? At his death in AD 31, right on time again. Don't you love this prophecy? It's every detail. Bang, 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 lining up right on time. Jesus died on Calvary. The everlasting covenant is confirmed. The sacrifice is brought to an end. The veil of the temple is torn from top to bottom. And that whole system was nailed to the cross, never to return again. However, we're still left with three and a half years, aren't we? Why are we still left with three and a half years? You know, every, every time you've got an extra piece of this prophecy, it just gets better again. Let's go back to it. We'll go back to our chart. All right. To understand the last part of this three and a half years, we go in in Daniel chapter 8, back up to verse 24, and it says 70 weeks are cut off specifically for who? For Daniel's people who are the Jewish people. 70 weeks are cut off upon your people, the Bible says. And so here we've got a time period that within this time period, they are to get their act together. They are God's church. This is God's church right here. Now, if we go to the time that Jesus ascended into heaven, Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Jesus is about to ascend into heaven. And in verse 8, he says this, but you shall receive power after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Notice the sequence he says, in Jerusalem, start there, then Judea, then Samaria, then the uttermost part of the earth. Well, that's exactly what the disciples did. They began by preaching in Jerusalem and then they preached in Judea. And for three and a half years, that was as far as the message got. But exactly three and a half years later, an event took place that brought a radical change to the spread of the gospel. You see, this was a time period that was cut off specifically for the Jewish people. But at the end of that time period, if we go over to Acts chapter 7, we find 
that there was an individual by the name of Stephen. He was a deacon and he was stoned. That means that they picked up rocks and threw them at him. Okay, so Stephen is stoned to death in the end of Acts chapter 7. And in Acts chapter 8 and verse 1, you find that there was somebody there by the name of Saul. Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, there was a great persecution. This is page 443. Acts 8 verse 1. At that time, there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. We go down a few more verses. In verse 4, the Bible says, Those that were scattered abroad went everywhere doing what? Preaching the word. Yes? Verse 5, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to who? Them. Them is the Samarians or the Samaritans. And so here you find a radical change that suddenly takes place when Stephen is stoned to death exactly three and a half years later. The gospel now for the first time goes to the Gentiles. It's not just exclusively for the Jewish people anymore. That 70-week period was cut off exclusively for the Jewish people. Now it includes the Jews and the rest of the world and the gospel goes out a whole bunch further. Three and a half years later brings us to AD 34 and the event exactly fulfills the prophecy. Now, I mentioned the other night about a dangerous secret society that did all that they could to obliterate this prophecy right here. And that secret society was the Society of Jesus, founded in the year 1540 by Ignatius Loyola and today called the Jesuits, became one of the most bloodthirsty and violent organisations our world has ever seen. In the year 1592, a Jesuit priest by the name of Francisco Ribera was commissioned specifically to come up with a way of hiding this prophecy right here. And so he sat down and he began to study. He turned the prophecy around and he said, no, 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 you got it all wrong. This prophecy is not about Jesus. It's not about the Messiah. It is all about the Antichrist. That's what he said. This is all about the Antichrist and it will take place in the distant future so you don't need to know about it. Now, now let's stop here for a moment. Before we go any further, let's ask ourselves a question. Who do you think would have an agenda to take the greatest prophecy that there is in the Bible revealing Jesus as the Messiah and say, no, that's not the Messiah, that's not Christ, that is Antichrist. That's an agenda of the devil right there. And so if we look at the structure of Daniel chapter 9, I want you to notice something significant about the structure. You see, Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 to 27, is written in Hebrew poetry. And Hebrew poetry is built on the concept of repetition. Makes a statement, repeats it, makes a statement, repeats it, makes a statement, repeats it. And as you work your way down through the passage, in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 24, you find, very simply, the first thing that comes up, let's go back to Daniel chapter 9. I want to illustrate this to you very, very clearly here this evening. 
Very important that we understand what is going on. Daniel chapter 9. In verse 24, it says, So many weeks are determined upon your people, upon your holy city, to finish transgression, make an end of sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity, and bring in everlasting righteousness. So here we have a reference to the Messiah. Isn't that so? Then it continues on, and the end of the verse it says, And to anoint the most holy. That's a reference to the temple. Isn't that so? Yeah? Then we go to verse 25. It says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and rebuild the city unto Messiah. So there we have the Messiah, the prince. Yeah. Shall be seven weeks. And then it says, And the street and the wall, that's the city, shall be built in troublous times. Then we go to verse 26. And after 62 weeks shall who? Messiah be cut off, but not for himself and the people of the prince that shall come to shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, etc. You see what's happening here right here? So what would we expect to come up in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27? We would expect it to start with the Messiah and then move on to the city and the temple. If we go to verse 27, he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. There's only one covenant in the Bible that this refers to. That's the everlasting covenant. In the middle of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. That's the city and the temple. So we got the city and the temple right there. And here's what Francisco Ribera said right here. He said, oh, no, 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 no. Just while you were expecting that to be the Messiah, just while you're expecting that to be Christ, that's actually the Antichrist. Does that fit? Of course it doesn't fit. doesn't come anywhere near close to fitting. That is the Messiah right there. That's not all that Francisco Ribera did. He created a gap right here between this verse and this verse. Is there any gap between those two verses in the Bible? You know how big of a gap he created right there? He created out of thin air a 2,000-year gap and launched those last seven days all the way down into the distant future. Then out of another piece of thin air, he created a covenant that is an earthly covenant made with the Antichrist here on this earth. Now, nobody in his day, thankfully, took it seriously. It wasn't until the early to mid-1800s that people began to take it seriously. Then it spread to the United States and took the United States by storm. And so the majority of the people in America today believe that this prophecy is about the Antichrist. Now, I've been saying all along that there is evidence of a two-tier system of religion in our world. Haven't I? There is evidence that there, are, there is a copy of the mystery religions of ancient Egypt that is in operation right now where you have those at the top who are initiated into the secrets and then what everything else, everybody else is entertained with beneath. We have more evidence of it right here. Back in the 1990s, there was a series of books that were actually, in fact, I'll come to that in just a moment. Um, the Stoning of Stephen, of course, brings this to an end right there. Now, let's think about something else before we... I'm going to come back to those series of books in, in, in a moment. 
But before I do, let's think about something else right here. Let's consider for a moment this prophecy in relationship to the Jewish religion today. This prophecy is a part of the Jewish Bible, isn't that so? What does this prophecy do to the Jewish religion today? It reveals who the Messiah is in unmistakable clarity. Remember, a year or two ago, I was preaching this message, the same subject right here in uh, Sydney. And unbeknownst to me, there were two Jewish people sitting in the audience. At the end of that presentation, they both came to me and they both said, we want to give our hearts to Jesus right now. Praise God. Because they recognised that this was their Bible telling them who the Messiah is. So how are the Jewish people able to deal with this? Well, the very simple thing is that the rabbis pronounced a curse, a number of curses actually, on anybody who would study it. Here's one of them right here. May the spirits of those who attempt to calculate the final time of Messiah's coming expire. This was specifically written in relationship to the prophecy of Daniel chapter 9. Now, I've gone over this a couple of times. There are a number of missing verses in the Bible. If you're going to turn this prophecy around and launch it into the future and make it all about the Antichrist... There are a bunch of missing verses that simply aren't there. Let me run through a few missing verses. I'll, I'll, I'll recover a few that I've covered before. Number one, that Jesus' coming will be in two stages. Find me that verse. That's not there. Here's another one, that Jesus' coming will be secret, silent, and unseen. Find me a single verse that says that. Does not exist. Number three, there's a 2,000-year gap between the 69th and 70th week of Daniel chapter 9. No Bible text says that anywhere. The covenant is the everlasting covenant. There's no verse for that. And of course, that the third temple is on earth. Once again, there's no Bible verse for that. The reason that there is no Bible verses for these friends is because these concepts did not originate with the Bible. They originated with the Jesuit order. And they have been foisted upon us. We talked about the series of books called the Left Behind series. We're not as familiar with them here in Australia as they are in America. In America, they sold around 66 million copies as of 2004. This series of books was written by a fellow by the name of Tim LaHaye. And it is all about, Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jenkins, it is all about this time period, seven years time period in the distant future. It's all about this prophecy that we've been studying being about the Antichrist. And the other day we looked at some Masonic symbolism, didn't we? Right here. There's a Masonic symbol. And if you didn't know anything about symbolism, you might not realise what symbol this is on the front of Tim LaHaye's book right there. That starts to tell you something, doesn't it? Now, not only did we have the Jesuits involved, but what do we have? Freemasons. A few years later, Tim LaHaye copped a little bit of flack over the concept of the secret rapture. The word rapture means taken up. Of course, we all believe in being taken up. But the secret rapture. And so he wrote a book defending it. And it was interesting to read that book because he defended it based, his primary defence was by defending the authenticity of the vision of Margaret MacDonald in 1833, who was a part-time spiritualist, mind you, 
rather than defending it from the Bible. I thought that was at least honest. But if you go to Tim LaHaye's book on the rapture, I find something significant about this book that most people missed. Guess when he released it? Does that tell you something? Is there something subtle going on here behind the scenes that is not being revealed to us? Clearly, there is. Clearly, there is somebody who has an agenda to pull the wool over our eyes. It is no wonder that Jesus said in relationship to his return, take heed that no man deceive you, take heed that no man deceive you, take heed that no man deceive you, and then a fourth time, take heed that no man deceive you. Well, friends, we haven't finished the prophecy yet, have we? We've got one last bit left to go, isn't that so? And that one last bit is going to bring us down to the cleansing of the sanctuary, the beginning of the judgment. So let's go to our big, long-time prophecy right here. We have the starting point. The Bible says that the fulfillment of these details is the seal of the longer one. The judgment takes place in heaven. You can't see it. You have to accept it by faith. God does not expect you to accept it by blind faith. So he gives you evidence after evidence after evidence after date after date after date after date. Exactly fulfilled, he said. When you see this fulfilled, it is the seal of the full prophecy right there. Okay, so very simply, all you need to do is dig out your calculator under 2,300 years, begin with 457 BC. That's going to give you another 1,810 years, and that will bring you down to 1844. Now, when you consider that, that's not so long ago, is it? Let's put that into a little bit of context for a moment, shall we? On night number two of this series right here, we did a series on the signs of the return of Jesus Christ. And we saw how all of those signs are being fulfilled right now. We also charted some of them on a graph. You know, the interesting thing is you can take any one of the signs, and there are a lot of signs in the Bible, and you chart them on a graph, and all those signs have always existed through history, and they just sort of bubble along like this, until you reach this period right here, and suddenly they take a very steep upward curve like this. We looked at, what did we look at? Um, geological disasters, hydrometeorological disasters, uh, biological disasters, all of them combined. Then we looked at signs. The Bible says that knowledge would be increased and men would travel to and fro. We found that the speed of a horse hadn't changed up until 1800, but suddenly what happens? Now we have the Curiosity rover, you know, a remote control buggy driving around on Mars. That happened in a short space of time, didn't it? Notice what happens as soon as we come to this period of 1844, all the signs, the Bible says, warfare would increase. The Bible says that deception would increase. And we find that Francisco Ribera's theories were not accepted until 1833. They didn't become popular until 1888. Right around that time period, just as Jesus said. The Bible says that the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached as a witness unto all the world. You have way back here the first foreign Bible society established and then look what's happening right here. All of these different ways of proclaiming the soon return of Jesus Christ. And so what do we have when we put the whole prophecy together? Friends, this is what we have. We have one of the greatest prophecies of the signs of the times and the promise of the soon return of Jesus found anywhere in Scripture. 
You see, Jesus can't give us the date that he's coming back because the moment, the moment that God would give us that date, you know what we'd all do? You know what we'd all do? Yeah, we'd all cram for the finals. I'll just, I'll, I'll worry about it when the time comes. God did that once before. He closed probation on the entire planet and he gave them the date, 120 years, I'm going to flood the whole world. And only eight people were ready. This time he doesn't give a date. But he wants us to be ready. So he's like, well, how can I do as much as I can without giving them the exact date? How can I give them as much information as possible so that they can be ready? He gives us all these signs of the times and he gives us a date, a date that shows us that we are living in the time of the end that the judgment is taking place right now. And Jesus is coming back soon. Isn't that good news? We serve a wonderful God, friends, a wonderful God who is coming back to bring an end to this world of evil. Now, I want to be ready for his return. I want to do anything it takes to be ready for his return. Do you want to be ready for Jesus' return? Do you? Praise God, friends. We serve a wonderful God. Let's bow our heads as we close with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for how clear it is. And Father, we thank you that it reveals to us that you are coming back soon. Father, this is the greatest promise that there is, that soon pain, evil, injustice will not exist anymore on this planet, will not exist anymore in the universe. We look forward to that day with every fibre of our being. We pray that you'll bless us and prepare us for it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. been listening to an M24 media production of The Prophetic Code by speaker-presenter Lyle Southwell. For more information, visit knowthecode.global or call 3ABN Australia Radio on 02-4973-3456.